The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a very, very special edition of The Good Time Show. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome to The Good Time Show. Uh, this is something uh, Arthi and I do about a couple of times a week. And what we do is we host these friendly conversations with people we admire from the world of technology, entertainment, sports, crypto, and just honestly, a- anybody that we find uh, really, really interesting. Now, we typically do the show at 10 p.m. Pacific, but today we wanted to do it earlier because we wanted to get a very, very special guest in. This is somebody we have admired. This is somebody, you know, who share. Okay, I don't want to, I don't want to like steal the thunder because Arthi has a fantastic introduction lined up. Arthi, <laughs> who do we have on the show today? Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, today we have uh, Indra Nui, Indra Krishnamurti Nui. She needs absolutely no introduction. She's an American business executive. She's a former chairperson and CEO of PepsiCo. Uh, Indra is no stranger to many of us in this room. She's consistently ranked among the world's 100 most powerful women. She now serves on the boards of Amazon and ICC. Uh, Nui was born in Madras, uh, now known as Chennai, which is where both Shriram and I are from. So this is very special for us. She has two daughters, and we're going to talk a lot about family and work-life balance, so to speak. We are also going to talk about her memoir, My Life in Full, which is incredible. Shriram and I, uh, we've been reading it over the last few days and I highly recommend that you read it. Um, we're so, so honored to have you here, Indra. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aarti and Sriram. You have this incredible trailblazing career. It started with, you know, Metur Beer Shell. We talk about like being in Johnson & Johnson, then all the way to PepsiCo. Uh, and finally, you know, as a CEO uh, of PepsiCo in 2006, and so what, what is it like from somebody who's like been on the outside and just watched your whole career? How did, did you plan for, you know, your, your ascent through different roles and the CEO role as such? Like, what was it like to just live this life of this incredible career that you've had? To be honest, the biggest surprise is that I didn't plan this career because my entire family, everybody worked in a bank or a government office or they were all lawyers. Nobody was in the corporate world. and so. We didn't know what the corporate world was until my sister Chandrika went to I am Ahmedabad. That was our first window into the something called the world of business. And then slowly mm-hmm. the world of business opened out to us. But the mantra was always just do the job you're doing very, very well. And the rest will take care of itself. Because if you go to somebody and say, I want a promotion, I want a raise, I want a bigger job. You're always fighting for the next job as, as opposed to doing the current job very, very well. My belief is that if you did the current job very well, but did it in a way that you redefined the job to be bigger than it was, then people automatically look to promote you. So my, my, my modus operandi through all the jobs was if my job you know, was you know, focused on a particular project or a particular deliverable, I'd figure out how this deliverable fit into a larger a tapestry of work that was going on and try to understand all the connection points so that my work could be richer. So when I turn my work in, people look at it and say, not only did she do what she's supposed to do, she also made it easy for us to you know, plug it into a broader uh, structure that we're looking at. 
So the biggest advice I'd give everybody is focus on the job at hand. Um, think of your job in a much more expansive way than, you know, trying to narrow it down more and more, which more pe most people try to do. And stop thinking about how do you uh, plan a life which says, I want to be CEO in 10 years or 15 years, and mm -hmm. then worry and spaz out that you're not getting there. One of the things which I loved about the book, and uh, again, I can't recommend enough for people listening, you know, please go read it. Uh, it's it's amazing. Is I think there are two stories I think you tell through the book. Uh, one is you sort of your professional climb up, uh, you know, through uh, Metro Virtual and, you know, PepsiCo, CFO, and then, um, you know, eventually obviously you, which I think a story someone's kind of knew a little bit. But I think the other story, which you really tell so beautifully and well, is that I would say the trade-offs um, and the effort involved, um, you know, in the job and how much it took uh, out of your personal life. I mean, there are these years and years, 94 to 99, where you and your husband both have busy jobs, you're away from home, you have a young child, and then you have a second child. Uh, could you talk to us about a little bit? And there's no way you can do justice to show because the book is amazing on that. Because but I think a core part of it, you're working really hard. Um, your family is working really hard, but you know you're having to balance that with actually raising two kids at home too. Yeah, the uh, that's right. When I joined PepsiCo in 1994, my first daughter was about 10 or 11 years old. My second daughter was 18 months old. So I have two daughters, two young kids. I had one benefit. PepsiCo's headquarters was 10 minutes from my home, and my children's school was five minutes from. That was a triangle. So if there's any issue in school, I could rush over. And if my kids were home and there was a problem, I could rush home and come back all within a short time. So that mm -hmm. helped a lot. I had no commuting to worry about. I didn't have the benefit of technology, all of the, uh, you know, FaceTime and cell phones in those days. And clearly there was no Zoom or equivalent uh, or clubhouse that one could uh, <laughs> the family with. But, uh, you know, in the absence of all of that, uh, we had the traditional landline phones, kept talking to the family that way. And if push came to shove, I would just run home. Uh, if my kids were sick in bed, I would go home three times a day and make sure that I made them good rasam sadam or something like that so that they felt... Um, <laughs> the words rasam sadam have never been uttered on the show before. I'm just so blown away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was food. And that was rasam made by mom. So I would make it early in the morning before I went to work. Similarly, if anything happened in school to them, they sprained an ankle or something. I was the first mom out of the door to go check on them. So look, at the end of the day, when you're trying to do a job uh, in a corporate world, which is, you know, senior that has tremendous responsibility, you're trying to manage two kids, you're trying to keep your home going. These are all full-time jobs and you have to juggle all of them. They're not easy. And when you juggle, by definition, you're making trade-offs. And so when you make those trade-offs, with that comes some guilt, comes some heartache, but that's all par for the course. And my point is, you can't live a perfect life where there's no guilt, there's no trade-off, no nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, which actually, actually, one of the most interesting moments in that part of the book for me was you meet Jack Welch, um, who is an icon. And, you know, you meet him in this sort of fancy GE executive private dining room. And he basically, in terms of kind of says, like, you can have the pick of jobs you want, but you have to kind of make a choice based on you just kind of settle 
and you talk to us about it because i think that was one of the interesting moments where you know i was amazed and i was like not many people maybe would have made the choice you did and it worked out so well for you but talk to us about that and you know and how did it actually eventually led you to a pepsico well you see the thing is that i was being uh, in, uh, recruited by both ge and pepsico ge was half an hour from my home up in fairfield connecticut and mm-hmm. pepsico was in purchase which was 10 minutes from our home um and my natural inclination was to think about ge because i'd worked in technology and electronics and you know loved that whole area that ge was in so that was my natural tendency and i'd like jack welch i mean i my meetings with him were very very good uh, but i also liked everything i saw at pepsico they were a youthful company uh, all consumer products um you know you walk into that campus and you feel sort of joy and you smile so two very different cultures uh, but at the end of the day uh, because Wayne Callaway the CEO of PepsiCo was on the GE board he called me up and said look i know you're looking at a G- offer from GE it's a fantastic company and GE and Jack Welch is a great leader i can understand why you'd like to join GE or why you're leaning towards GE but i just want you to know that my need is greater than theirs uh and if you came to pepsico i promise you that i will make sure that you develop mentored and uh you know you listen to you will contribute massively to pepsico and in a funny way uh i had worked in motorola and abb for an individual not necessarily the institution because i had followed gerhard schulmeier who was my boss in motorola and in abb and by coming to pepsico i was coming to an institution not an individual because ge was defined by just jack welch pepsico was an institution so in in the back of my mind i decided that i was not going to go to this following an individual again i was going to follow an institution and that to a damn fine institution with a great culture and great humility and that's what brought me to pepsico wow that's a great story i i read about this as well and i wanted to ask you about choosing pepsi over ge because at that time at least it must have been an unconventional choice given your background you know i wanted to ask you about that like you know training as uh, a scientist or stem education in your youth you know you've talked about this in a lot of places where you've said stem education in your youth will set you up for life um and how you're able to pick up other skills as you grow uh can you elaborate on that because you know right now there are like two schools of thought there's obviously like you know stems really important and where we are but it's also about like arts humanities everything else that you can pick up so what what's your take on that with respect to um you know science technology just math you know, general education in your youth i just think that it's my observation and i may be wrong i just think that if you don't stay with stem disciplines from the time you start sort of uh, schooling and mm-hmm. take it all the way through college it's very hard to get back into stem if you've dropped it uh, just around high school on the other hand humanities and the arts you can go in and out anytime you want so my plea to people is that you don't have to major in a stem discipline but keep a toe in stem because the thinking the analytical prowess of being in stem uh, stands you in great stead whatever mm-hmm. you choose to do and with technology disrupting us and our way of life in so many ways all you guys in silicon valley i think we should put you all on a bus and let you go on a long vacation <laughs> but the fact of the matter is everything you're doing is disrupting life as we know it and the only way to keep up with it is becoming a lifelong student ourselves 
And to be a lifelong student in this world, you have to have some basic STEM knowledge or aptitude for STEM. Even if you don't have the knowledge, at least the aptitude to learn it. And that comes with staying with STEM through school and college. So that would be my plea. But again, you know, each person for himself or herself. Uh, okay. So I think one of the interesting bits in the book is I think you are, you know, kind of fast rising up the, the ranks of PepsiCo. I don't know whether you were already CFO at this time, but you do some sort of a study to break down, I'm guessing, competitive analysis between PepsiCo and Coke. And you talk about how Coke's economics are driven by their focus on syrup. And one thing that struck me is, uh, you know, how we were able to use research and data to win over people. Um, and even though you, at the time, hadn't been there for maybe a super long period of time, and you know, you maybe didn't look like everybody else, talk about that period of time at PepsiCo, you know, where you're kind of fast climbing up, uh, you know, the charts. Because in some ways, I think a lot of people listening to our show are in middle management, maybe senior middle management, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I get to that next rung? And I think that episode was super interesting for me. Well, I was blessed with a boss, Roger Enrico, who had just become CEO, uh, who basically said, you know, I, I trust this person and I believe that she does a great job because I'd proven that the few assignments I'd done for him were good. He gave me the most difficult assignments, and then he let me present it to the board. So I developed tremendous confidence because of his support. And because I wanted to keep um, making him proud of me, I would up my own game. So I became my own judge to say, I can do better, I can do better. So I raised the bar on myself. Um, so every project I took on, it got better and better. And I uh, would give everybody a piece of advice. Uh, that competitive analysis I did of Coke um, when I had a consultant who worked with us and um, the document they prepared was I think four or 500 slides very well put together but I can't share 500 slides with the board I can't share 50 slides with the board so I sat back and I said how can I take this entire complex piece of analysis and whittle it down to five slides that's the goal I kept for myself five slides. But in these five slides, the board has to get the complexity of this issue and have a clear idea of the economics of PepsiCo. And I would urge everybody to think about making the complex simple and demystifying any work you're doing. And I converted this long deck into five slides. I put it on big boards all around the room. And I told the board, walk with me from board to board. And I'll tell you, the entire story in these five, uh, you know, diagrams which I had drawn. Uh, I must tell you, many board members who were there at that time will say they still remember that presentation because it was so clear. Mm -hmm. All the mystery was taken out of the work. And I did a couple of these presentations to the board, which basically the board said, not only is this person a good presenter, she understands what she's presenting. She, she goes into detail. She zooms in zooms out to present it in a way that everybody can understand and then derives the right conclusions. I was given the opportunities and I capitalized on those opportunities and did a good job. And I think they all work together. And and how was it, uh, how did you feel when uh, you were made CEO of PepsiCo? Well, my first surprise was when I was made CFO. Then I became president and CFO. Then when I became CEO, it almost felt like 
why me? I mean, how me? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, first of all, Steve Reinemann and I, who was the CEO before me, were very good friends and he was a great CEO. So I was sad that he was stepping down. Um, but then um, when you're at that level, if you're given the call to be CEO, you do it. And um, it was an incredible honor. You feel terrified because now you're it. And uh, the day the announcement is made that you're going to be CEO, you're basically responsible for the company. Even if there's a date three months out that you become officially the CEO, literally from the day of announcement, people are looking at you. So you have to be mentally and physically prepared to take on the job. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, I wanted to talk about your role at PepsiCo and speci- very specifically, just as one part on getting into more healthy foods. Like, you know, I think uh, uh, when you were CEO or during your time there, you know, they brought in like healthy foods like baked chips and water brands and specific acquisition focused on healthy foods. And so much to the point where I think today half of the company's revenues comes from healthier drink and snack products. You've also said, you know, you don't really have a perspective or control what people should eat or dictate like what they should have. Um, but, you know, what, how was the transition inside the company? Because uh, you've talked about, you know, culture changes, changing the mindset of the company, do well by doing good. How was the whole transition as an insider in the company? Look, the days that I was attempting to do this were early, early days of purpose, early, early days when people were thinking about the future and working back. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, people at that time said, what are you trying to be, Mother Teresa? And I got all of that uh, feedback. Today, people look back and say, oh, my God, she was prescient. But it doesn't make a difference mm-hmm. because in those days, I faced a lot of criticism. But at the end of the day, the approach I took was, look at the big mega trends that are going to impact the company over the next decade or so. And then work backwards from that and say, how is this company positioned against the mega trends? And if you're not positioned well against the mega trends, what do I need to invest in to retool the company? Get the board to buy off on this and then go off and execute. Because at the end mm-hmm. of the day, a CEO should run the company for the duration of the company, not the duration of the CEO. Mm-hmm. And so my point was, whether I'm there for five years or 10 years, doesn't matter. I want this company to be extremely successful for decades ahead. So I presented a plan to the board. They bought into it. And then after that, you've just got to go to the organization and engage them, engage them head, heart, and hands. You've got to convey the right message to them, recruit the opinion leaders, and find every possible way to communicate with them by video, in person, through letters, through, uh, you know, just uh, recordings you send out to them. I did everything that I could to communicate with them with the greatest missionary zeal. Mm-hmm. And over time, the organization became extremely committed to performance and purpose. Um, one thing that also really struck me was uh, the, your style of management inside Pepsi. And there is one thing you mentioned in the book, which I wrote down and I'm absolutely going to steal, which mm-hmm. is you write notes to the parents of some yeah. of your key employees. And I was like, you should talk about the impact of that because that was like, that was like this is genius. Um, you know, when I went to Madras the year after I became CEO, uh, my mother was in the house, a family house, and I went there and uh, people walked in, you know, many relatives and friends came in and they just look at me and say, oh, congratulations. And then go to my mother and say, you did such a good job bringing up your daughter. It's your mm-hmm. prayers. It's your efforts. I mean, all the credit only went to her. 
nothing. To do. Uh, and uh, you know, and, uh, when they all left, I said to my mom, "You know, I uh, how come nobody congratulated me?" She said, "Well, what did you do? I prayed, and you got successful. Okay, fine. It's all all credit due to you." But mm. then I realized that I had not given the parents of my executives any credit for the gift of their child to PepsiCo. And remember, it was going to be a positive report card because their children were already senior executives. So I came back and I drafted a letter which explained why I was writing to them and then wrote something personal about their own kids, what they were doing at PepsiCo, why they were contributing so brilliantly. And I ended by saying, I thank you for the gift of you know, XYZ to PepsiCo. And, uh, you know, some nice closing remarks. Mm -hmm. Those letters, uh, over time, I wrote about three or four, I think 400 letters to 400 executives. I wrote to the parents and the spouses. And uh, it unleashed emotions, like you won't believe it. Parents basically felt more bonded to PepsiCo, felt closer to me as a CEO. And if any of them went home and said anything negative about me, the parents would just say, "Uh uh-uh, she's my friend. (laughs) <laughs> so it built an independent relationship between me and the parents, which is not what I intended, but um, it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, bond between us and the parents. But I will tell all of you uh, who are in positions where you have people working for you, I'll just say my own kids, if any of the bosses of my kids say, oh, your daughter did a good job, I think I got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I walk around, my husband and I walk around for two or three days floating, saying that, my God, our daughters are so well-perceived in their jobs. Yet, most people don't do that. Most people don't mm-hmm. tell parents how well their children are doing. And I just decided to break the mold there. Is it true that you also met these parents in person? Yeah, all my direct reports, I traveled and met them, met them in oh person. Oh my God. That's, that is commitment. That is like some hardcore commitment yeah, right there. I don't well, think we will do it. Well, actually, in some ways, it's sort of like a throwback because one of your first bosses actually visits your, I think, parents or grandfather and kind of has a relationship with them. I thought it's kind of like a, a symmetric mm-hmm. thing in some way. Yeah, that's true. Although he, he came for the South Indian coffee too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so three words, and I would love for you to talk about them. Performance with purpose. What do they mean? Why do they matter to you? Performance is performance. You know, PepsiCo is a high-performing, you know, financial performance company. And we were always going to deliver performance. But we were going to do it in an unusual way. We were going to do it with a deep sense of purpose. Do what's right for society going forward. And we're going to do it by nourishing our consumers with the right products, replenishing the environment, and cherishing our employees. So nourish, replenish, cherish were added on to performance. So it was not about how we gave money away for corporate social responsibility programs. It's changing the way we made money. That's the big difference between CSR and PWP. Without transforming the portfolio or focusing on the environment, we couldn't deliver performance. And if you didn't deliver performance, you couldn't fund those programs. So it was a virtuous circle. And that's how you should uh, you know, uh, define purpose going forward for any company. It should be part of the business model of the company. That makes a lot of sense to us. Uh, you know, I think this part, we, the one part that I wanted to cover now was uh, you have a couple of chapters in your book on this too, and I urge everyone to read it, the final few chapters on uh, what happens now, like especially around work-life balance. I think in 2014, the Aspen Ideas Festival, you basically very famously had said, women can't have it all. 
we live in a world where we're constantly told that, you know, where balance is not only possible, but to push harder on the career front. And, uh, but, you know, you take us, you, you, you look at that in your book right now, and you've been a longtime supporter of evolving the economy to support families. Um, what advice do you have for people like me specifically where, you know, we're trying, we're trying our really, our real hardest to make it all work. Um, and on one hand, you get told, oh, just keep pushing at it. You can do this. Just drop everything, focus on work. But then on the other hand, there is all this tremendous guilt on not focusing on your personal life. Um, what would you say and what advice do you have in your book for all of us? So the first thing I'll tell you, Arthi, is that I've met a lot of women who went to college, went to graduate school, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, um, had children, gave up their jobs because, you know, they wanted to be viewed as a good mom, which I fully understand and I fully support. So I'm not making a judgment call. Mm -hmm. But about three or four years after they did that, they started to get deep pangs of regret saying, why did I give up my job? Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't given up my job. I can't go back in the same level. And then they go into regret, they go into guilt, they go into uh, sort of resentment in a way. And mm -hmm. so I think there is no right answer as to what you should do. You should do what your head and heart tell you to do. If you decide to engage in paid work and um, have a family, um, I think with the current tools we have, all the technology development that's happened during COVID, you can actually opt, you know, operate flexibly and in a hybrid environment. And with you and Sriram, you guys can take turns at doing equally the parenting responsibility. It cannot be just you or just him. Each of you have to participate in it equally. Um, but without a care ecosystem, you'll have a really tough time. So mm -hmm. be nice to your parents and your in-laws and any family members willing to help out and make sure you find the best childcare center or the caregiver who's mm -hmm. going to help you out because you never know when you're going to need their help. Sometimes both of you have to go into an office or both of you have to go to a meeting. It's hard to manage the kids. And yeah. so uh, I think motherhood, fatherhood is a fantastic thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful tether as I write in my book. And I would want that for everybody who wants it. At the same time, you've got to understand once you have kids, it's a lifelong commitment. Yeah. And um, we owe those kids the duty of parenting. I, yeah. I would say, you know, this is actually interesting because Arthi and I actually had a conversation after reading your book. Uh, you know, we were trying to prepare because, you know, we had never met you before. Uh, but some of the most interesting parts of the book are you talk about, uh, you know, quite detail about finding childcare for uh, your daughters, about how I think when you're obviously much further along in your career and you're successful, you're CEO, you're, you're one of, I think, your exec admins, you know, kind of stands in for you quite a while. But I would say in the earlier part of your career and your husband's career, you know, who's obviously very successful in his own capacity, you were both really busy and making these trade-offs. And in some ways, you know, Arthi and I, you know, we, you know, we are probably, in, uh, uh, you know, we talk about that a lot for our own daughter. And that was just a very touching part of your book, so which is why I think for a lot of people who are parents here, who are very busy jobs, which I think a lot of folks listening, I highly recommend reading that because if nothing else is going to, you know, it, one, it's just an amazing model to follow and it's going to give you uh, a lot of things to think about for yourself. Sriram, you know something? I'm talking to the movers and shakers of technology. Because <laughs> that had I had a lot of the technologies we have today, all right, when I was, you know, a young mom, 
life would have been very different for me. The one plea I would have for all of you in the Valley coming up with the newest app, with the newest gizmo, put the family and women in the center of it and say, what do we need to innovate around to make family life less stressful? What do we need to innovate and invent to make, um, you know, to create more time for families to enjoy uh, time with each other? What are all the time-saving devices I can provide for them? Uh, and I think it's important that you start with the problem you're trying to solve and work backwards as opposed to coming up with a nifty gizmo and then finding a home for it. I honestly believe if somebody can solve it from a systems perspective, it's you guys. And when you were, you know, in our roles, you know, where we, where we are in our careers now, um, Indra, I wanted to ask you, did you have guilt uh, on, you know, being able to be at, like, I, I, I've seen your work ethic and reading your books, reading your interviews. It's just incredible. It's very inspiring. Um, it feels unsustainable. But how, did you have any guilt at that time? You know, guilt is part of the DNA of most women. It's programmed into it. And I had plenty of guilt DNA in my body. Mm -hmm. um, but that's par for the course, because when you're making trade-offs, when you're doing three jobs at the same time, being a mom, being a wife, being an executive, and you know, once you ascend in a large company like PepsiCo, it's two or three jobs rolled into one. Um, guilt is always there. But I always sort of uh, rationalized it by saying, my kids are always either with my husband at home or my mother or my in-laws or somebody is there from the family always with them. Mm -hmm. They've always had a supportive structure at home. And, uh, you know, when we were growing up in Madras, even though my mother was at home, she was always busy working on the kitchen. I don't mm -hmm. think she's ever hugged us and said, I love you. Or yeah. you know, I could go to her and say, I have a real problem with this person in school. Mm -hmm. And for her to say, let's sit down and talk about it. It's never happened. Never happened. And they said, go tell her prayer. Things will get okay. So that was one of the parts which really resonated with me because uh, I would say we all grew up in like, you know, uh, we are lucky to grow up in very supportive, loving households. But talking about these things was not a thing that you did. Absolutely not. And so at least the kids had me to talk to. I could, you know, give them advice. I could talk to them. I was very involved in the school. So I think we have to let go of perfection. Mm. Perfection does not exist. But I think the most important thing is, I think men and women have to share the caregiving responsibilities equally. When it's disproportionately on the woman's shoulders, it becomes very difficult. If men and women share the burden equally, not even burden, the joys and the responsibilities equally, I think families are happier. It leads to a more harmonious married life. And I think even the children grow up much more uh, you know, uh, ho holistically and happily because they see both parents involved in their growing up. And I think that's where we need to get to. Okay, now back to PepsiCo. I think so in, in some of the, some of the, I would say you're now CEO. The two, I think, themes which really struck me, um, uh, um, one, I would say, is you visit Silicon Valley and you have an amazing meeting with uh, Steve Jobs. So talk to us about it because I think that really was interesting because you both are, leaders in your industries come from very different backgrounds, but you found such common connective tissue? Well, Steve Jobs is an icon. You can't even compare him with me. I was I, I was revering him. The fact that he gave me an hour was amazing. And he was extremely kind and extremely welcoming when I went to see him. And the biggest lesson he taught me was that 
design had to be in everything that we were doing. He said, when you sell a product, you're actually selling an experience. You've got to sell passion. You've got to sell love. And the only way you can do that is if the product draws the consumer into uh, into it as opposed to you pushing the product onto the consumer. So think about every touch point and think about how to give it the right design aesthetic so that people get totally hooked on the entire experience. Now, it took a while for me to understand it, but you know, I went off and uh, got some design books, read them, and then I hired a fantastic designer to head up to create, I should say, the design function at PepsiCo. And uh, we went from, I would say, a handful of designers in PepsiCo outsourcing everything we were doing to a hodgepodge of people to when I left PepsiCo, we had something like 450 or 500 designers in-house who were deeply embedded in the innovation process and worried about everything from the concept of a product all the way to execution, the experience of how it showed up in a retail shelf or a restaurant or a stadium. And so that one is a lot of uh, business. But, you know, again, if Steve Jobs is going to give me the time and give me some advice, I'd be crazy not to take it because he's a successful, iconic, brilliant man. And uh, I took the advice and I um, was better for it. Um, So I think, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, like you talk about is, uh, and I think one of the later parts of the book, you talk about like bringing together, uh, you know, some of your peers who are CEOs in leadership positions. Uh, That's a great anecdote there about actually um, uh, Hillary Clinton. But one thing which struck me is uh, the loneliness about being CEO. Like I grew up on Star Trek. And one of the things always struck me is like, you know, Captain Picard seemed like he couldn't actually hang out with the crew. And you mm-hmm. talk about how as you became CEO, your relationships with the people who work for you change. And, the you know, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown and so on and so forth. So talk about that, right? Like the loneliness of leadership positions, because I think that's something you had some amazing insight on. Well, when you become a CEO in particular, or even when you're a CFO, uh, you are, you know, you have in your possession so much confidential material about the company. And especially if you're thinking about some bold action in the future, it's all highly confidential and you have to make sure by that you don't blurt out anything at home or in any social uh, setting. Because if you did, you have to put out a FD disclosure to say that everybody has to have access to the information. And so I got to a point where when I got home with my mail, I would jealously lock up all my mail because I didn't want anybody to see what was in my bag. I wouldn't talk about anything uh, about my work to anybody because I was afraid they would blurt something out, my kids or my husband. And you couldn't talk about it with other CEOs too because you never knew if they had PepsiCo's talk. So, And you can't talk to your key executives about it because at the end of the day, you're the CEO and there is a chasm between the CEO and the direct reports in terms of You've got to know your position in the company. Um, now, here comes the challenge. So as a CEO, you end up being quite lonely. Who do you talk to? Who's your sounding book? Uh, and so if you're not strong yourself and if you don't have a way to sort through all those in your head, uh, you'd be uh, overwhelmed by the CEO. Uh, sometimes I use my husband as a sounding board, but I did it judiciously because he had his own challenges that he had to address. And the last thing I wanted to do was burden him with PepsiCo stuff. Uh, so it's a lonely job. It's a very lonely job. 
I love that. And, you know, I think I've tried to find a solve for this, but uh, the best I could do is like have peers that are similar, but you know, you're right. Like that also has its own constraints. And I totally understand what you mean at my own level. I talk about this to Shriram all the time on the, the job is just like really lonely. Um, you know, yep. with that, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, we have a couple minutes left before we wrap up. Indra, is there anything that you want to tell our, you know, our listeners here? It can be anything about your book. It can be anything that you just want to share. But what's the one thing that you would like to tell all of us listening here today? You know, it's a message that I uh, gave in my parting note to all of you go-getters who are looking to reinvent the world, who are looking to uh, um, address every dissatisfaction that exists out there. Uh, while you have a go-go life, think hard about time. All of us have so little time in this world. Think hard about time. Think hard about families. Think hard about how you want to juggle work and family. Mm -hmm. And when you reach a position of power, make sure you bring the discussion of family to the core of all discussions about the future of technology. Because at the end of the day, societies are better if we have thriving families. And so make sure you don't lose your sense of humanity um, as you uh, you know, develop the next bigger and better thing from a technology point. That's great. I love, love, love that advice. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much. I mean, this has been, I would say it's been an hour, but just flew by for us. Uh, but no, seriously, I want to uh, wrap by first, like thanking everybody here. Uh, uh, you know, there've been so many amazing, tweets and comments and dms and people are just so touched uh so thank you for everybody who listened in at a different time who woke up very very early in india uh we're going to try and get this recording out some point in time just because i think this is so special um but mostly i want to thank indra i think you know your story your compassion your wisdom uh you know it was so touching uh, for people listening uh, definitely go out and read her book. It's called My Life on Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Uh, it's available everywhere. And preferably, you know, uh, read it while, uh, you know, uh, drinking a cold glass of Pepsi. But uh, uh, Indra, this was amazing. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sriram. Thank you, Arati. It was great to be on your show. Bye-bye.